0: You can tell a lot about a person by the way that they tell a story. Um, We all tell our stories a little bit differently. My personal favorite way—this is going to surprise you—to tell a story is uh, the longest way possible, Uh, the most drawn-out way possible. I think it's just kind of a realization. I just love attention, and so I love doing that when I'm telling a story. Uh, and to drag out the suspense if there's suspense in a story. Even if there's not suspense, maybe I'll put in suspense. Uh, Leanne is a compassionate person, and uh, oh, she's not there, and she's not there. She's there. Leanne is a compassionate person, uh, and so if you're listening to one of my long stories, she'll have compassion on you, and she'll fix the telling of the story uh, by revealing what I'm drawing out intention, Uh, she thinks it's fixing. I always respond with gratitude and uh, grace to those fixes, those type of things. But uh, you really can tell a lot by what a person points out in a story. We could all tell some aspect of Thanksgiving dinner. Anybody who was around your table could tell some aspect of it. Something would stick out or whatever was important to them. Who's the author of the Bible? God is the author of the Bible, right? Uh, The Holy Spirit moved through those men who wrote, so we say it's divine authorship. Uh, It is breathed out by him. Who's the main character of the Bible? Same answer. God, right? Yes, in the person of Jesus Christ, but, but God is the main character of the Bible. The Bible is revelation from God, about God, and the unfolding of God's plan to redeem God's people. So what he says in the story is not accidental or incidental. Uh, we follow along and try to, to glean out what is God saying, not just about, about us, that's true, or in this case about Abraham, uh, but about God. And it's very easy for us to just be like, oh, be, be like Abraham. Well, only if Abraham is reflecting something about God, and he does in their story for this morning. Uh, but I want to focus in on what from maybe this is familiar, maybe it's not. But what about God can be gleaned from our passage in Genesis 18, and specifically if it's you know, God's revelation about about Himself and and His plan, God's plan to redeem His people, God's revelation about God acting to redeem His own people, um, then what is there in this interplay or this relationship between God and His people? Uh, in this story. And I think that there are six uh, different points that uh, I want to try to draw out. Uh, but let us ask, before we read, let us ask God to uh, teach us about himself and his plan to redeem us as his people. Uh, Father, um, we, we submit those things to you. We are, we are grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful for the truth about you that it contains. And I pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that we may glorify Christ your Son and our Savior, Uh, even in this time, even in our listening and in our lives, uh, as you transform us through these words. Help us, help me, Um, amen. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, so the meal that we talked about last week is done, uh, and then they get up and they they leave, so the conversation with Sarah is over, this is where we, we pick this up, they're leaving this tent, Abraham's tent. Uh, Then the men, right, sorry, context, there are three, and we we eventually find out two of them are angels, and the one that we've already heard talk to is the Lord himself, okay? That's who these men are, especially if you weren't here last week and you're like, who are we talking about? That's who we're talking about. Verse 16, then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there? He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Six pieces to this. There's two sections, sort of the Lord's, the Lord's statements, first to himself, uh, then to Abraham, and then this dialogue, this interaction. I want to grab these different things about the Lord from each of those, But but first, a point that I can't move past as God speaks to himself about Abraham. We we realize God knows his people. Um, right in the middle of verse 19, right at the beginning, for speaking of Abraham, for I have chosen him. My, my Bible has a little note that chosen there is the Hebrew word for known. And if there's ever a word that that just gets worked. Uh, it does work in the Bible. It's this word to know. It can mean all sorts of different things, uh, but it, it's not just like he's aware of it, right? Like if we had just read like, oh, I know Abraham, we might be like, who is that guy that I saw at Kroger the other day? I, I know him from somewhere. That's obviously not the case here, which is why these translators, I have no issue with it, that I have chosen him, right? So to, to choose is to to know and to know is to choose. There's this personal aspect with it. And then here also, that choosing, that knowing, has the sense of, I have covenanted with him. I have committed myself in a relationship to him. So there's a personal aspect of it. There's an intimacy to it. There's, a, there's that significance of, I have covenantally sworn myself to what what he's going to talk about, to bless him and to bless through him and to fulfill these promises. There's a relationship that God has committed himself to have with Abraham. We know, as we've looked at that, it's not because Abraham has deserved that, right? Those whom God knows in this sense, those whom God has chosen, those whom God has has covenanted himself to be their God and taken them to be his people, uh, means that, that those people, they are special to him. Uh, they are important to him. He, he acts on their behalf for their good. Uh, and since we could never deserve this, it has to be his gracious choice of us, right? For God to, to have known, chosen, and covenanted with Abraham really comes down to two options. Either Abraham was worthy of that, and it was a, uh, a payment. It was his due Or Abraham did not deserve that, and it was God's grace. We have to consider, what do we know about God? What do we know about us? What do we know about Abraham to say which is that? Did Abraham deserve to have this relationship with God, or did Abraham not deserve to have this relationship with God? And we know from everything that we've seen about Abraham, who he was as an idolater in that land before God called him, Abraham did not deserve that. So this, this choice on God's part was not because of Abraham was a great guy. Abraham wasn't a great guy, right? It wasn't because he was a good worshiper. He worshipped idols. He wasn't a good husband, right? He acted as, what What did we say, Keith? We said... uh He was faithless, and he was fearful, and he was foolish. I think those were the three. There might have been another one in there somewhere, right? That's who Abraham was, yet God graciously chose him. And over the course of this time, we see the same thing, where God says, like, I have chosen him. God knows his people by his choice and not just an awareness, God has actively chosen his people. And Jesus reiterated this to his disciples. It's not just something that applied to Abraham. In John 15, verse 16, he says to them, guys, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And that same thing is true for us. But again, this knowledge, we can be like, oh yeah, no, covenantal relationship. And when you use multi-syllabic words and try to sound fancy, it kind of distances us from that. But this same one who knows Abraham is the one who sat down outside of his tent and had a meal with him. The same Jesus who said to the 12, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. He knew their names, he knew their stories, he knew their sin, he knew all of their weaknesses and doubts, and he knows that about us as well, right? So we can't just take this into uh, the highest, most distant, sometimes we can do that with, with doctrinal truths and make it a distant thing right? Oh, like this this big choice and all those aspects. And that is true. God has sovereignly chosen his people to be saved, but God knows you. Like he knew Abraham, face to face. Our relationship with God, the New Testament says, is actually better than God's relationship with Abraham because of Jesus Christ, right? Somehow John the Baptist is better than Abraham, and we're better than John the Baptist, not by our actions, but by the grace that has been shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. God knows us. God knows you. I've just been struck with that this week. Now, Jesus did not physically show up at our Thanksgiving dinner. If he did show up for yours, I would like to hear about that. But if you are his by faith, then you have that type of personal close, intimate, known relationship with God because he has chosen you and he knows you and he has committed himself to you just like he chose Abraham and knew Abraham and committed himself to Abraham. God knows his people. And we also see that God reveals himself to his people. Verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide, talking to himself uh, and telling us, so it's not just an aside, right? We're supposed to be listening in. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And he goes on. Well, what's God's answer to this question? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? What is the answer throughout the text? We just read it. No. No, I will, I will not hide it. I will reveal my plans and my purposes to Abraham. I'm not going to hide this. I'm going to bring him in to what I'm doing. And we see that in verse 21. So he says, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grave. This is what I'm going to do, Abraham. I'm going to go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come out, uh, has come to me, or whether whether they've brought an end to this, whether they deserve the destruction that's coming. And he didn't just come down on a fact-finding mission, right? He came down to act, kind of like when we talked about God remembering. And when God remembers, that was a different, that wasn't you guys, sorry. When God says he remembers, it's not because he forgot. It means that it's time to act. And that's what's happening here. It's not like, I don't know what's going on in Sodom. I mean, there have been, guys, there's so many places around the world. And I've been trying to keep up with stuff. And then I hear about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm like, what's been going on there? Well, I got to go find out. Right? Like, that, that's the, the dumbest way to read this text. Am I allowed to say that? It's obviously not, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, we already heard about it in chapter 13, that the wickedness is great. Then who's the author of the Bible? God. So who knew that Sodom was a terrible place, great sinners against the Lord? God knew that. But he's saying the time to act has come. Their sin has reached its fullness, and I'm going to go see that for myself. And they certainly do play that out as these angels come in. Keith will walk us through that next week. That kind of reminds me of that that fullness of those type of things. Remember how God had said to Abraham, and he says to others, like, this is your land, but you can't live here yet. But in 400 years, I'm going to bring you back, because at that point, the sin of the Amalekites will have reached its fullness What we'll talk about later of the mercy of God, the long suffering of God, the patience of God, in my mind, is kind of like a dam. And then that sin just continues to pour and pour into it, and eventually, the floodgates are opened, and the wrath comes down, and God's saying that time for Sodom and Gomorrah is, is today. But he's revealing this to Abraham, but he didn't have to. They deserved the destruction that they receive, but God could have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah without revealing anything about it to Abraham or anyone else, and left it all for Abraham or for others to just sort of figure out what happened on their own. That's not what God did, though. Instead of just swooping in and destroying, because he's sovereignly omniscient, he knows everything that's taken place, instead... God revealed to Abraham what he was doing and why. And I would say this, that God interpreted his divine judgment of these wicked cities to Abraham. God interpreted that. This is is what is going to happen and this is why. And we see this throughout God's word. He tells his people what he has already done. This is what I did and why. And sometimes he tells his people what he is doing. This is what is happening, and this is why. And other times he tells what he will do, and he says, and this is why. And he does this, like I said, to interpret these things for us, to show us what is really going on from God's perspective. We have our perspective, and then we have God's perspective. And ours is very limited, right? And God's is unlimited. He has all information and acts in all wisdom and justice and righteousness where we see things very, very, very narrowly. But the significance of an event is found in its interpretation, right? Like as parents, um, if, a, if you round a corner, kid rounds a corner, bumps a vase and it breaks, that's unfortunate, right? But if they were roughhousing or throwing a ball they weren't supposed to throw or doing something else and the vase breaks, well, that's a whole different story, Right? Like one is kind of like, well, I, I mean, I'll say let's be careful, but I don't think that you were not being careful. And the other is, well, this is coming out of every penny that you that you make or receive until we replace that. Right? So the significance of an event is found in its interpretation, and God knows all of those aspects. And God is then telling us this. Like sometimes catastrophes strike because God is judging a city or a country. Sometimes that does happen. Other times, catastrophes strike because we live in a fallen, broken world filled with thorns and tsunamis and volcanoes. Those are not equally bad. Right, We live in that type of world, so catastrophes and disasters do just happen, and other times they happen because God sends them in judgment, which is it in a particular instance, and we need God to interpret that for us, and he doesn't always interpret that for us. The people of Jesus' day knew about local catastrophes, like we might lo- know about local catastrophes, and they thought that God's judgment had come down on this one city when a tower fell and crushed a bunch of its citizens. They were like, ah, God's judgment. And Jesus is like, no, <laughs> like, you got that one wrong. Like now sometimes towers fall in God's judgment, but that's not what happened there. Matter of fact, do you think that you're not sinful? You don't think that it's, you deserve to have a tower fall on you? Unless we all, unless you all repent, we we'll all likewise perish. Jesus rejected that theory. Everyone was sure that the man who had been born blind was blind because of a sin. Maybe it was his sin. God knew he was going to do something awful and struck him with blindness. Would that be a, a proactive punishment for something that he would do in his life? Or, it's like, or maybe it was his parents. Maybe they were really terrible people. So because of their sin, this man was born blind. And they're like, well, we know this one, Jesus. We know what the interpretation is. Suffering comes only because of sinfulness. So whose sin was it? And he's like, well, your premise is wrong. That's not the only option. This wasn't about sin. It was about Jesus revealing his glory and healing him. That was the only reason for this man's blindness, right? So the interpretation of what that is makes a big difference. That's the problem that Job and his friends had, right? What was happening? Why is he suffering? Why all that death and loss? Why all of that sickness, And those three buddies, they were great, right? And they're just kind of like, duh, you're horrible. Like you rob from orphans. It's like, no, I don't. It's like, you're wicked and unfaithful and you're a liar and you're violent. You're the worst human that's ever lived. And so it's come to your doorstep. And Job's like, that can't be it. I'm not that guy. We know that he wasn't that guy right? God's interpretation of an event with all facts, that's what's significant. And we need God's interpretation. And he was revealing himself to his people as he comes to Abraham. And the divine interpretation is always correct, right? Like, God doesn't get it wrong. We don't always have that interpretation. Wouldn't, that would be great, wouldn't it? To always know with detail before, during, and after what God is doing and why, Well, the Bible doesn't tell us God's reasons for doing everything that he does. I thought about how John wrote at the end of his gospel. It's like, Jesus did and said a whole bunch of other stuff. And if we tried to record that, the world couldn't contain it. That's so true. Obviously, it's in God's word. But what if God had like, uh, here's what I was doing when you're... when you got that red light instead of the green light. And here's, here's what I was doing when you got sick right before Thanksgiving. And here's what I was doing, right? Like God's reasons for everything, like the world, the universe could definitely not contain the books that it would take. For us to understand all of God's purposes in everything that happens, we don't have that in the Bible. We, we couldn't process that. But most often, God just does not interpret for us everything that he is doing. And so if God is not intending to and he doesn't interpret that, we should be very careful to proclaim that he has. Oh, this is what God is doing. Like, well, sometimes in the Bible, the people who are most certain of that, without God telling them, they were wrong. And we need to be careful about that. Is I don't think that that's honoring to the Lord to be like, oh, I know this is what God is doing in this instance. Show me. Because if he hasn't talked about it, then you could very likely be wrong. And we need to be careful about saying this is what God is doing, this isn't what God is doing. But when God does interpret something for us, we need to pay very careful attention. Because even in this, God revealing to Abraham what's about to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah is not for Sodom and Gomorrah's sake. It's not like Nineveh. God doesn't tell Abraham about this to then send him into Sodom. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Go and tell them because I'm going to have, mer- I'm going to have mercy on them. Jonah's like, no way, right? He's out. Right? This is the opposite of that. So God's not telling Abraham for Sodom's sake. So who's left in this conversation? Abraham. God already knows And now God has revealed himself to Abraham about his plans and purposes. And I think this is why. I don't remember which proverb it is, but it goes something like this, right? Fools don't learn even when they suffer, but the wise will learn even when the fool suffers, right? And I was always the fool growing up. No matter how many spankings I got, I still would not learn And At least one of my sisters was wise and she would cry and grieve and confess things that she hadn't even done when she saw my punishment happening, right? Like that's the difference. Just bang your head into the wall over and over again and be like, I don't understand why I have a headache. It's like, well, moron, you're running your head into the wall, right? But then the other person's like, oh, that didn't go well. I'm not going to take that path. And so if God's not warning Sodom, then isn't he warning us? That there's a dam, there's a limit to the long-suffering and patience of God. Judgment is coming. The flood was not the last act of God's judgment against sin. And no, it, it was the last universal judgment by water but that doesn't mean that there aren't other acts of local catastrophe and judgment for God's sin and that there's not a larger judgment coming. God is telling us this. I hear the cry of the sinners and the sinned against. The voice of, right, the ground has cried out about the blood of Abel. You remember that? I heard the ground cry out as Abraham as, as Abel was murdered by Cain, right? And this, this outcry, this cry against always takes that. There, I think that there could be a couple different senses here where like, what has God heard? What is this cry or this outcry? In one sense, I think it's the reveling of the wicked. Ha! We get away with everything here. We've given ourselves over to all of our lusts and we are getting away with it shaking their fist at God. And God hears that arrogance. God also hears the outcry against those wicked because there's more than just the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It was was decadence and it was arrogance. It was just wickedness abounding, an entire city given over to anti-godliness. And all those who were abused and attacked and robbed All of those things, when them, with their words or in their hearts, cried out against the wickedness done to them, that cry also came before the Lord. They they weren't his people necessarily, but even a a person who doesn't love God could still cry out, like, how long? Like, when will God's judgment come? Who's going to stop this? Somebody needs to do something. Right? The outcry of, of... reveling in wickedness, and the outcry of suffering from wickedness, both of those things have come up before the Lord. He has heard. He hears everything, and he knows the sins that you have committed, and he knows the sins committed against you. The outcry of those type of things has also come in. He, he knows right every cry of every murdered infant, right every lie spoken against you Every act of of violence or misunderstanding or faithlessness, like whatever those sins are that you are committing, God knows, he's heard, and everything that you have cried out of just like, how long? Don't we hear the saints say those very same things in Revelation? Their prayers, how long until you do something about this? When will your judgment come? And then he says that, that text, right, a little bit longer, but every prayer of those ends up getting collected and poured out like wrath on the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. This too is God revealing himself to his people. It's like, just because it hasn't come yet doesn't mean it's not coming. And that's what happens in this verse 26 of this other aspect of Revelation that, that Abraham already had a sense of, where God says, I will judge justly, That's what God has, that's what Abraham knows by intuition or revelation. Uh, There's not any previous text talked about with this, but shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And God is saying, yes, he confirms that. He's not kind of like, whoa, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm the judge of all the earth? No, he's like, yes, I am that. And you're going to do what's right, right? Yes, I will do what is right. This too is confirmed in God revealing himself and his character and his plans to his people. This is one of the primary things in this story about that righteous judgment of God that God is revealing to Abraham in this story. Through this conversation with Abraham, God's character is confirmed. He most certainly is the judge of all the earth, and he does do what is just and right. and He does that always. God knows his people and God reveals himself to his people and God blesses his people. We see this emphasized yet again. Covenant promises spoken in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, here again in chapter 18, and it's going to happen a few more times where God continues to speak these blessings that he has for Abraham. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. We've already covered it, we're going to cover it again. Uh, but it was important enough for God to repeatedly emphasize it to Abraham. Every conversation that he has, by the way, blessing. By the way, offspring. By the way, not just a blessing to you, but a blessing through you. Each of these conversations re-emphasizing the truths. Maybe Abraham, like us, uh, was prone to forget the blessings that we have and the blessings that we will receive. Right? Isaac's still not born yet. So it bears repeating. What has God promised to Abraham? He will become a great and mighty nation through this son who will be called Isaac, who will be born in, less, in about a year's time, to keep the story together. And all nations will be blessed through him and through this son and through that nation, through Christ we too have eternal and spiritual blessings that God has promised to all who are in Christ. We too have blessings, blessings that we know about, but blessings that we also forget about. They too bear repeating. We have mercy from punishment that we deserve, and we have forgiveness of sins that we have committed. We have Christ's. Righteousness counted to us, just like Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. If you believe the Lord, it is counted to you as righteousness. We have adoption into his family, individually and corporately. We have eternal life with him. We we like that first part. We miss that second part, right? Eternal life with him, seated at his table. Known and knowing, face to face, knowing him as we have been known. And we have his Holy Spirit living and working in us. These are, these are covenant spiritual blessings. In fact, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours because of Christ. God blesses his people. God also uses his people. This text is just filled with this. Verse 18, we've, we've heard before. Not only will he become a great and mighty nation, it's not so that he will conquer everyone else. But in the midst of this, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So again, if that, the, reemphasizing that God will use Abraham and his offspring, which again, leads us to Jesus. He will use his people to be a blessing. Verse 19, how else does the Lord use his people? Well, Abraham and his children, his household after him, were to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Right, righteous, justice. That's the character of God that's going to be displayed in the lives of his people. So God chose Abraham, unrighteous, to make him Righteous, because God is righteous. So God's choice of Abraham was to display who God is in and through Abraham. God's choice of us took place with his full, complete knowledge of our sinfulness. And God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, but he did not save us while we were sinners just to leave us in that wretched state. He saved us to transform us into the image of Christ. Ephesians 1.4 brings this together, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him because that's who he is. To display his holiness at work in us. To know that as we love, it's because we've been loved because God is loving. As we are holy, it's because his holiness is at work in us. Because he is holy. And he is righteous, so we are righteous. And he is just, so we are just. And he is merciful, so we are merciful. He is patient, so we are patient. Right? It's that work that just flows out through us to, to keep his way. So this transformation in and through us displays God's righteous character to an unrighteous world to show that contrast between God and sinful humanity. And how many different texts talk about the same thing? Like Titus 2 talks about the grace of God appearing, Jesus. He brings salvation to all people and trains us, the same grace that saves us, trains us to renounce ungodliness renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in the present world, in the present system of wickedness abounding from every side, that we are to be living differently because that's who God is, displaying his work in us, right? Are we recognizing that there's that purpose for us in this world that we live in? Just like Abraham, surrounded by wickedness, you are to walk in my way. Matthew 6, while we live in this evil world, our conduct and our testimony is to be salt, purifying and preventing, preserving it from destruction. We are to be light, testifying the gospel of the glory of God. And this is what's interesting. It may be that God is sparing our city or our state or our nation from the destruction that it deserves because of the presence of the righteous people in their midst. Like, that's in this text as well. That God uses his people living transformed lives in an untransformed place to stem the judgment as the gospel goes forth, that we're here for that. Because we are to act righteously and justly as the Lord acts righteously and justly, while Sodom acts unrighteously and unjustly. Like those are the three kind of pieces to this. God who is righteous, we are to, who are to be righteous, and they who are not righteous. But that God has a purpose for that. And we see that playing out through these type of things. It may be that God spares that, but it's not automatic. There's not an equation to it. Many people have tried to make kind of an equation to this, if there are 10, right? But here are just a couple words from the prophets so that we can see that there's more than just God acting automatically. Idols act automatically in superstitious myths, right? But God is personal. God is real. God doesn't just kind of like, you pray and he's like, oh, I have to do this type of thing. You speak these words and this magical thing happens. It's not who God is. But in Jeremiah, the people of God were as bad, if not worse, than Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says this in Jeremiah 5, God says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man. One! who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. So it's like maybe Abraham could have gone even further because to Jeremiah, it's like, if there's even one person who is actually mine in the city of Jerusalem, I won't destroy it. There's not. But then it's not automatic. It's not just this number that God can't destroy a city in judgment just because there's one righteous person there. It's not the full picture because the prophet Ezekiel records God's very chilling words to him in chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, this is what God says. When a land sins against me by acting faithlessly as his people had done, and I stretch out my hand against it, he says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. If I could find one in Jerusalem, I wouldn't destroy it. But then later, as their sinfulness progresses, he's like, I don't even care if my top three are there. (laughs) There's a whole theology of like, what does top three mean? But this is like, right? Noah, who was found and spared from wickedness in the midst of a wicked world, and Daniel, who, who is a contemporary of Ezekiel, right? In the midst of Babylon, continuing to live righteously. And Job, who although he was afflicted, right? Yet, it's like Noah found grace, right? And Daniel is one of God's. And Job's, have you considered my servant Job? He is righteous. Even if those were here, I'd pull them out and I'd burn the place to the ground. See, it's not an automatic thing. God uses his people for the good of the place in which they live to display his righteousness. Are we being used by God in this way? And we also see verse 19, another way that God uses his people, the earlier part of that, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Command his children. So this revelation that we've received about who God is, And what he does and what his purposes are in his mercy and in his justice and his love and his faithfulness and all of these different things, that revelation is to be passed on. I haven't just saved Abraham for Abraham's sake, but I want him to share and to pass on this revelation. This sounds an awful lot like Deuteronomy 6, doesn't it? Right? Love the Lord your God, Pass that on to your children. Teach them my ways. And God has said this to Abraham, and I think it was already happening uh, before this, and it happens after, but we have a responsibility to share the revelation of who we know God to be, and his interpretation of his actions that we see throughout his word. God also uses his people, and this is certainly one of the bigger pieces of this text, that God uses his people to intercede for sinners. To, to draw out mercy from God. By having this conversation with Abraham and revealing the coming judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, God was inviting Abraham to intercede for the righteous in that city. Why, why bother telling him? Right? Why, why bother telling him and then waiting? Like, the two guys leave, and it's just like one of those awkward times in conversations where you know one person really wants to say something to the other, and you kind of know that they want to say something, and so you just sort of wait. And they're walking off, and Abraham's there, and he's just kind of like, he has more he wants to say, and and the Lord just waits. Waits because he wants Abraham to intercede on behalf of the righteous in this city. He wants that conversation to happen. So God tells him what he's going to do, and then just Waits. For Abraham to speak. And Abraham does speak. See, God, who is a God of mercy, had begun to imprint his merciful character on Abraham so that Abraham wouldn't just care for himself, wouldn't just care for for his tribe, but would care for the citizens of this wicked city and pray for them. God is obviously not annoyed with Abraham for, for asking and asking again and for bartering, as it were, uh, for these people's lives. That, that reads so long. Kind of like, Abraham, man, stop. Like, why are you still going? And then again and again, and it's almost like, you want to be like, all right, that's enough. And Abraham, Abraham stops. The Lord doesn't say, stop talking. Because he's inviting this from Abraham. He's he's drawing this out from him. God wanted this conversation with Abraham. God prompted him to come stand before him to intercede. I'm going to go see if it is this bad. I'm going to come and I'm going to act in judgment. What do you think about that, Abraham? That's not what the text says. I think that that's implied in that invitation. Anything you'd like to say? And there is. God lingered when the angels left so that this conversation could take place that kind of leads us into this next part that God listens to his people Abraham starts off will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked maybe there'll be 50 far be it from you like this is this is unthinkable that you would act like this God it's it's revolting to think that the judge of all the earth the one who is righteousness himself would act unrighteously You, you wouldn't do that you can't do that please don't do that. And then God responds, I will spare the whole place for the sake of the 50 and all the way down. So God listens and God responds and it continues to lower even though God knew what he was going to do. God knew that there weren't 10. Right? At best, maybe, let's see, four get out, one wishes she had stayed, Two show themselves to not be righteous. So maybe there was only one. But God listened to this, and in interceding for the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham began, be, begins a pattern of God's people interceding for others. What does what "intercession mean? Interceding. Anybody want to take a stab at that? What does it mean to intercede? Yeah, to, to ask on behalf of somebody else, right? To not just pray good to them, but, but, but pray forgiveness for them. Forgiven sinners standing before God to ask him to forgive other sinners. That's our intercession, asking on somebody else's behalf. Not just forgive me for my sin, forgive Keith for his sin, right? There's another story very similar to this one in Exodus chapter 32, God reveals to Moses his anger against the Israelites' idolatry, that he's going to come down in judgment on them. He's going to wipe them out as a people because they thought that he, was, he could be represented by this golden calf. But like Abraham does here, Moses stands before the Lord. He intercedes for the sinful people, and he prays to God on their behalf. The text says he implores God to have mercy, and God does. He listens there. And we see Job interceding for his friends who got God and Job wrong. And we see Samuel interceding for the people and for Saul. And we see Elijah and Elisha praying on behalf of God's sinful people. and We see Amos praying for God's people. We see Daniel praying, may, may, may your judgment come to an end. Would you count the 70 years back a few so that we can return earlier? And of course, who do we see interceding for sinners? Jesus. We see Jesus praying both for his sinful disciples and he prayed for his murderers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God listens to his people God invites the prayers of his people like he did for Abraham. He listens to those prayers. God is willing to spare these wicked cities from the divine judgment they deserve for an ever-decreasing number of righteous people according to Abraham's prayers. This is a real conversation. God listens to the prayers of his people, and he acts in accordance with those things. So do we pray like we believe God is listening? Do we have hearts like Christ that long to intercede? Do you, have, do you have a heart that loves to intercede for fellow sinners? Is that an instinct of yours? Do you have an instinct for judgment? Or do you have an instinct for intercession? Or having been saved, are our memories so short that we only delight in the destruction of other sinners. We've been spared. And then do we delight in the destruction of others? Or do we delight in interceding? Where does your heart go? And then the last piece, that God spares his people from judgment. I will go down, verse 21, to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. Keith will talk more about the guilt and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah next week, but like I already mentioned a little bit, I want to emphasize again, like God already knew about their sin, right? That cry had come up to him. He knew it was true. He knew about their wickedness. And God also knows about all sin. God knows about my sin. And God knows about your sin. verse 23 to 26, we see this interesting point about these righteous people. And we could read this with kind of a, the whole Bible in mind and what does God say about righteousness and how many righteous people are there on the earth? None. This whole conversation could have been way shorter. What if there are 50 righteous people? There's not one righteous person on the face of the earth, yourself included, Abraham, and I'm going to go wipe them out. It's like, what's the point of the dialogue? Like, God is not being, like, uh, false in this. Because, like, righteous here is not, like, the full weight of perfect, sinless righteousness that we sometimes think of. Like this, it can also just have that idea of innocence. It's like, God, are you going to wipe out the people who, uh, yes, Sodom is terrible. A majority of them are terrible. Almost all of them are terrible. But are you going to wipe out the ones who haven't done that? The one who haven't stolen, the ones who haven't committed adultery, the ones who haven't murdered, who haven't abused, are you going to, like, that's, there are innocent people. Not everybody has done everything everybody else has done. Are you going to wipe them out as well, right? So that's really what this conversation is about. And there are innocent ones in Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, if there are, will your judgment fall on them in this way that these exceedingly wicked ones do deserve? That's the conversation the people who are not guilty of the heinous sins taking place in this wicked city? Well, apparently those people didn't exist, that the wickedness had been that pervasive. But even if that's like that perfect righteousness that we talked about, the, the, lo- the law-loving righteousness, not just law-keeping righteousness, but law-loving righteousness, because God never has accepted, this is kind of like the, the outside with the inside that's wrong. It's not just kind of like, oh, I'm I'm here, and I'm not going to complain about it outwardly, but like inside, it's just festering. I don't want to be here, right? It's like, I'll obey on the outside, but on the inside, I'm not obeying, right? That's not pleasing to God. So, So law, obedience, loving righteousness doesn't exist in any of our hearts, except what God is working in us. It's like, but that perfect standard of righteousness, even if it's not what this conversation is about, God does require of us, and we don't have it. We're, we're not innocent. We're also not righteous. So in any sense of the term, like those kind of things just don't exist. We deserve God's judgment. I deserve God's judgment. You deserve God's judgment. But this text and what follows in chapter 19 specifically as it comes into to Lot as one who is God's, one of God's people This does point us forward to a wonderful truth. Whatever aspect of righteousness, like the judgment of God does not fall on those who have Christ's righteousness, right? Those who are righteous will not suffer the judgment of the ungodly. And we have already established, right, that by faith we are righteous in Christ. It's like you don't have a righteousness of your own through works or motivations, but you have the righteousness of Jesus. So there's no judgment for you. Because that's what Christ has done. We, through faith, are righteous, and therefore we will be spared from the judgment that our sins deserve. God spares Lot. God has spared us. Because he's a merciful God. When we first read this passage, I think we could come away thinking God is is just and stern, and Abraham's really nice and merciful right? You could see that reading. I'm going to do this, and Abraham, oh, please, please don't. God's like, well, okay. Right, but is that the character of God that aligns with Scripture? Clearly not, right? that's what I've been trying to say. It's like this story isn't about Abraham being a nice guy. It's about God who is merciful and produces and draws that out of his servant, his servant, inviting him to intercede for other people. A closer reading of this passage combined with the rest of Scripture reveals that God is just and God is merciful. His judgment and his mercy are both perfect and they are in perfect balance with each other. There's no sense of that. It's like, well, he was angry, but then like Abraham or Moses or or Daniel calmed him down. Maybe Jesus calmed him down. It's like, that's blasphemous. As if the Son of God would differ with God the Father, right? As if only the Old Testament is God's angry and the New Testament God's calmed down? Over time, it's just, he's not as upset about it? Like, that's blasphemous. No, at all times, God's justice and his mercy, like, both are perfectly imbalanced, perfectly united with each other, and perfectly glorified to him. And uh, we, we need to submit to the truth that God's judgment against sinners is real, but it's also more severe than we can fathom. It is just and it is righteous. Like the city of Hurricane deserves fire and brimstone to fall on it right now. And this church, (laughs) and my home, and my office, wherever else, right? There's enough sin to warrant the judgment of God. And it's like, wow, right? You, You read this and, Read it to your kids for the first time. And you're like, and then fire and brimstone came and like a, a horrendous judgment that falled on this and killed. We were talking about, the, about Saul and Agag and the Amalekites last night. God's judgment had, right? His mercy had reached the full there. And he's like, I want you to go in. I want you to kill every man, every woman, every baby, Every cow and sheep, and I want you to wipe them out, like they had done with Jericho, right? Like the judgment of God that fell on the Egyptians, like what happened to God's faithless people, right? And we're just kind of like, man, can I just skip over that a little bit? Because I really don't like the sound of that. The justice and judgment of God is more severe against sinners than we are comfortable with, and then we can even fathom of an eternity of suffering that our sins deserve, everyone's sins deserve. And we need to submit to that truth, not argue it away, just bend before it. Just kneel to the truth of who God is. We also need to submit to the truth that God's mercy towards sinners goes much farther than we think is possible. Like the kind of sin that you're like, God shouldn't forgive that. He does forgive that. Right? We're, we're all comfortable with God being merciful toward our sins, but then there's those people. Right? Those, those abortion doctors. Let them all burn in hell. If you don't repent, you'll likewise perish. They deserve that. You deserve that. It's kind of like, oh, those sexual sins are, are horrific. Homosexuality? all the trans this, that, and the other thing, like all of, uh, I don't even know how to describe it all, right? And we're all just kind of like, yeah, let them burn. God's mercy extends to all kinds of sinners, like us. Do you only love God's mercy for you and only love God's judgment for someone else? Are you willing to submit to both? Which do you love more, God's, Judgment or God's mercy? Do you have an interceding heart like Abraham and like Christ that longs for more mercy to be shown to more sinners? Or are you the last one who should get in? Father, thank you that you are a merciful God to sinners like us. Thank you for Christ's intercession, even to this present moment for us. Our great high priest, we seek to join in with those prayers. Would you be merciful to our neighbors, our city, our county, our state, our country, our world? We deserve your judgment. Thank you that you are merciful. Through Christ, would you extend that mercy? not just to delay punishment, but to, to forgive him. Please give us hearts like that, hearts that love and submit to your justice and love and submit to your mercy. Thank you that there's no conflict in that in your heart, in your, your mind, in your plan. Amen.